Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And as you turn there, I just want to explain that we are going to pause our study of the book of Zechariah, having completed the first major section, the eight night visions that comprise chapters 1 to 6. And this December, we'll be studying Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3 over three weeks, Genesis 1 today, and then the two weeks following the cantata, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Um, And I'd like to begin our study by reading Genesis chapter 1 in its entirety. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. The darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth. The waters that gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth, each According to their kinds, and it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, 
after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens to do everything that and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that is breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening. And there was morning. The sixth day. And we've just read in a few minutes what is probably one of the, one of the more controversial passages in the Bible. In fact, Genesis chapters 1 to 11, and specifically Genesis chapters 1 to 3, comprise some of the most controversial and hotly debated chapters in the Bible. Which, before we dive into our study then, and if you want to follow along on the insert, I want to address why I and the elders thought it would be good for us to study these chapters this season in the life of our church. And i got three reasons, and I'm going to move quickly because we have a lot of ground to cover. First reason why it seemed good and timely is because our small groups have been going through, at least most of them have been going through, a study in the book of Genesis. And as that study's been going on, questions have arisen. The book itself did not deal sufficiently with this issue. I mean, it can't deal with everything, but we would wished it would have dealt more with the issues of creation. And so this is, in some sense, meant to be a supplement to that. It's been a while, going back through our records, when was the last time Genesis 1, 2, and 3 was taught on? It's, it's been a while. It seemed timely in the life of our church. Second reason why we're studying this is because these Chapters are foundational to the Christian worldview. Now, you may not know that you have a worldview, but I assure you that you do. Worldview are those things, or if you're postmodern, your meta narrative, or whatever you want to call it, are those beliefs, those structures, those foundational truths that frame how you view everything else. Worldviews tend to deal with issues such as, why am I here? Well, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 deals with that. Um, who am I? We, we just read. We're image bearers of the living God. What's wrong? Everyone recognizes something is wrong. Well, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to answer that question. And how can what is wrong be made right? And again, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, and the promise of the woman's seed crushing the head of the serpent seed, we'll see how these things can be made right. Worldviews, who are we? What are we? Why are we here? What's wrong? And how do we fix what's wrong? And those types of issues are foundational for your worldview. Everyone has beliefs on those things. And for the Christians, Genesis sets the foundation. It answers those. It gives us the categories. It gives us marriage. It gives us the dignity of humankind. And for our purposes this morning, it tells us where all of this came from and how. They're foundational for the Christian worldview. Third, these chapters are currently very much under attack. I was talking with Pastor Daniel earlier this week, and, and I, I really think that you could accurately say that no other time in human history have Genesis 1, Genesis 2 been more hotly debated, 
rejected by the world and, and confusion in the church than this day. We live in a world that is given over to scientific materialism, to anti-supernaturalism, to uniformitarianism, and basically a view of the world that doesn't have a God in it. And we live in a, in a day where, where marriage is under attack. And so for all these reasons, it's important for us to teach on these things, specifically when they're under attack. I want to read a quote that is often attributed to Martin Luther, although the research um, I did and some others have done, it seems to actually have originated from um, Elizabeth Rundle Charles in 1864. Regardless, it is an excellent quote. But the importance of addressing those issues in the Bible that are being attacked, oftentimes you can be tempted when, when the culture, when something's hotly disputed, to try to sidestep it. And there, there can be some wisdom to that, but listen to this quote. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that little point with which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking... I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, that is where the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be ready on all the battlefield besides that point is mere disgrace to him if he flinches at the point of conflict. And so we don't want to pick a fight, but we don't want to run from a fight. If God has spoken, let's see what he says, and let's try to give some clarity on these issues. So that's our introduction. And I recognize one week, Genesis 1, you'll have questions. If you have questions, I'll be spending most of my ABF dealing with them. Um, there are other resources we can get. You can talk to some of the elders, talk to Pastor Daniel or myself. But with that, we're going to dive in. And I want to make it clear from the outset where I'm coming from. I believe that the Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2 are reliable, are trustworthy, are true, and the history that they lay out is to be understood as it's written, as the church has historically taken it over the last 2,000 years, and that that therefore conflicts with certain assumptions, certain beliefs in the world, in the culture, and in scientific circles. Now, I'm not a scientist, so I don't plan on dealing with science. I am a student of the Word, and I plan on trying to show you what the Bible teaches. My goal this morning is to show you what the Bible teaches. Uh, I hope and trust you've come to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. If, if that's something you have a question about, we did a series two years ago on the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. There's a sign-up sheet in the foyer. We'd love to make you a copy of a full CD set of all of that. I won't be going into that as much this morning. So I'm going to argue a reason, assuming we are the people who believe the Bible is God's Word, what then do we make of Genesis chapter 1? And I'm going to do this by answering four questions. So let's dive in. Question number one, how should we respond when the Bible conflicts with things that we believe to be true. And that's really, this is sort of the, the foundation's question. Every one of us, I'm sure, has encountered things we've read in the Bible that at first read conflict with something we showed up to the book believing was true. Whether it's the Bible's ethic on forgiving your enemies, whether it's the Bible's ethic on turning the other cheek, whether it's what the Bible has to say about marriage and divorce, whether it's what the Bible has to say about homosexuality, whether it's what the Bible has to say about loving your enemies. The Bible will say things, God's word will say things that you will have a hard time initially hitting. The Bible will say things that the spirit of the age, the wisdom of the world says no to. What do you do when that clash comes up? Or more specifically in our case, the Bible is going to say things that appear, at least, 
to conflict with, with the old view of the earth, with scientific theories of evolution? What, what do you do when that conflict arises, wherever it arises? And I, I think answering that question is, is hugely important. Because if you get that question wrong, if you, if you come at this the wrong way, I think it'll skew everything. So the blanks here, how do we deal when, when the Bible conflicts with things we believe are true? We must resolve never to sit in judgment over the Scripture. Never to sit in judgment over the Scripture. And before I explain what I mean by that, let, let me make one caveat. Sometimes what can be in conflict is what I think the Bible says with what's going on in the world. And so just because I think the Bible says something doesn't mean I've got it right. People have misunderstood the Bible. It, it has happened. And people have wrongly understood what it teaches. And so whenever we, we find that what we think the Bible says is in conflict with what other Christians say, or even what the world says, by all means, we should reexamine our exegesis of the passage. We should check our math, so to speak. We want to remain humble and open to objection. We, we want to invite people coming to us, opening the Bible, Jeremy, are you really sure that's what it says? In fact, in our second point, that's what we'll get to. Okay, what does Genesis say? But before we get to that, I want to deal with the method, which is once we've determined what the Bible says, then what do we do when what the Bible says, and we're confident we're understanding it correctly, what do we do then when that conflicts with other things we think we know? And I want to be Bereans. First point, God's, world must be, God's word must be interpreted correctly. You've got to make sure we've, we've interpreted it correctly. It is possible we've misunderstood it. And you may remember in Acts 17, um, it reads that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews, these Berean Jews, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. How? For they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the Apostle Paul comes to Berea, and, and Luke, writing Acts, commends them. He calls them noble, because on the one hand, they, they eagerly heard what Paul had to say. And even though Paul was a miracle-working apostle, they went home, and they read their Bibles, and they studied to see if this was so. And that's a good pattern. Don't take my word for anything. Take God's word for everything. Um, my, my job up here is to try to show you what I think God's word says, to lead, to, to open, to try to reveal its meaning. But if you don't see it in the text, please don't take my word for anything. Be Bereans. Receive the word eagerly. Search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Paul likewise encouraging young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So we want to be open and acknowledge, hey, we can misunderstand this. Hey, we may not correctly be handling this. And so we want to differentiate between those people who challenge, say, anything, whether it's Genesis or marriage or whatever, those people who are challenging us saying, hey, I don't think you're understanding the Bible correctly. That's a good discussion to have. Anytime that we're opening our Bibles, let's read it. Let's see what it says. Amen. Let's bring that on. That's great. As opposed to, well, if the Bible says that, it's wrong, which is kind of where I'm moving on to next. God's word is our highest authority. Point B, God's word is our highest authority. So now, if you can assume that we've rightly understood something, what do you do then when what the Bible says, and we've studied it, and yes, it teaches that, conflicts with 
anything, conflicts with what seems good to you or me, conflicts with the scientific consensus, conflicts with pop psychology, conflicts with modern anthropology, conflicts with anything, what happens? And this is where the Bible's claims about its own authority are staggering. I want you to listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. And he's, he's addressing in Romans 3 the, the faithfulness or the lack of faithfulness of the Jews. And he's saying God made promises to the Jews and, and they're not all believing. And does that bring into question God's faithfulness? And the Apostle Paul says this. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be found true, though every man a liar. That is a staggering statement. What the Apostle Paul is saying is this. Once God has gone on record and said something, if you lined every single human being, alive and dead, who has ever lived, and they were to sign a petition disagreeing with God in the strongest possible terms, guess who wins? And you sit here and you're like, amen. That has real-life application, because that means there may be times where what the Scripture says and what the world says are just headlong train-wrecking towards each other in conflict. We've got to say, once we study the Bible, if that's what God says, let God be found true, though everyone a liar. We've got to recognize our own fallibility. We are mortal. We are sinful. We, we don't have an ability to, de- to derive truth in a category like God's truth. We can observe things. We can, we can figure things out. But our understanding is growing. It's changing. It's morphing. In my own lifetime, butter was bad, butter was good, margarine was good. I, I, it's hard to know what's up or what's down. And I know, that that's, I know that that's not true across all the sciences, but it's just an example of how our understanding of things changes. God's word remains. That's what Jesus had to say about heaven and earth will pass away. This doesn't get an update. There's no Bible 2.0. For any of you who are... Who are, who are uh, Apple users seem like they're updating their thing every. There's no Bible update. God has spoken and it stands fast, and it is our highest authority. In fact, the danger then is is this, and I, I have this discussion a lot, especially when I was on Simpson campus. I talked to students, talked to faculty. Is are we coming to the Bible from underneath the Bible or from on top of the Bible? And, and what I'm asking is, if you come to the Bible from beneath the Bible. You're coming as a servant. You're coming as someone's slave. You're coming as a subject of the king, and you're saying, okay, God, what have you said? Because whatever you said, that's what we're going to try to believe. That's what we're going to try to do. We just need to understand it. We're coming under an authority, as opposed to coming to the Bible from on top of the Bible. We're the authority. We're sitting in judgment on it. The Bible becomes accountable to us. We will see what we make of this. And, And I challenged it because, to me, the issue of biblical authority only matters when we don't like it. Let me use the illustration. How much authority do I need to give you $100? I demand you take this $100 bill. I don't really need much authority. I don't, who are you to tell me, don't tell me what to do? No, you're going to take the $100, right? <laughs> um, I'd be happy to prove that that is true. For anyone who wants to try to force me to take $100, I'll be happy to demonstrate the uh, truthfulness of that report. No, authority only comes in when I say, give me $100. By what authority? By what right? The the biblical authority is not demonstrated in those passages that we love. It's not demonstrated in in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not demonstrated in the steadfast love of the Lord endures. It's not demonstrated in those passages that we love. Turn the other cheek. It's not demonstrated in those passages that we naturally find and say, yes, I like that. 
We don't need anyone to tell us that. We already liked it. Biblical authority really is demonstrated when the Bible says something that we go, what? Turn, turn your Bibles to John 6. The biblical authority is demonstrated when we don't even understand what God has said or how to make sense of it. That's the challenge. What will we do when what God says conflicts with everything you want, everything you believe, everything you think is right and appropriate and wise? What do you do then? That, I suggest to you, is when what you think of the Bible and its authority is proven. Don't tell me you hold to biblical authority if all you do is receive the passages that you like and ignore or explain away the passages you don't like. You become, clearly you're the authority. I just want to make that clear. You're the authority. I've had this conversation dozens of times um, with, with students at Simpson, just making it clear. You've you got to settle who's the authority. Am I the authority over the text? I like that bit. That bit can stay. Eh, that bit's kind of, eh, we'll get rid of that one. Or is the text the authority over me? And I want to make it clear that you can, you can respond like Peter does in, in John 6. In John 6, Jesus gives a very hard sermon. Um, he's not very seeker-sensitive in John 6. He's got a huge crowd following him, and he basically sends them all home as he teaches them about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, a hard teaching. And then he turns, and many of his disciples begin to leave. And then, after his, so first the crowd leaves, and then the big, sort of bigger group of disciples leaves. And then he turns to his inner circle, verse 66, John 6, verse 66 to 69. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, so Jesus said to the 12, thanks for sticking around, guys. That's not what he said. That's not what he said. <laughs> Do you want to go away as well? And, and they don't understand what he's talking about with eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It, it, first blush, it kind of sounds like cannibalism. It's not. But at first blush, you could see how people could stumble over that. Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter doesn't get this. He doesn't. He hasn't figured. Oh, I understand. This is. A, I understand the deepness of what you're saying. I just know you're God, and I know there's nowhere else to go, and so I'm sticking to what you say. I don't understand it, but I'm going with what you said. We sing that in that song. Show us Christ. Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's it's coming right out of John six, and that's okay. You, don't, you what I mean is you don't need to have all the answers. When someone comes up to you and says, well, yeah, well, what about these recent discoveries? You can say, I don't know. I mean, I'd be happy to look into it. I hope there are Christians who are looking into it. But here's what I do know. There's a living God, and he loved me, and he saved me, and he sent his son to die for me, and he spoke to me in his word, and I'm going to trust him. You can, you can have childlike faith. You can say, I don't know. Mommy and Daddy told me to sit here, and I'm just going to sit here, and I don't know why they said it, but I'm going to sit here. That's okay. Like, that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Okay, so in summary then, and here's, here's the point of what I'm trying to get at. What we can't do, if we really believe the Bible is the highest authority, is allow things outside of the Bible to determine what the Bible means. And the next thing we're going to do is look at Genesis chapter 1. What does it actually say? We haven't gone there yet, but when we do, what we think science says is irrelevant. What we think pop psychology says is irrelevant. We're going to take the text on its own terms. We're going to study the text on its own terms and then we're going to let God be true, though every man a liar. And we're not going to bend and say, well, even though we pretty clear the Bible says X, um, because of what we know out over here, we're not going to let the text be determined. Nothing outside of the Bible is going to determine the Bible's meaning. We're not going to, we're not going to bend or yield to, to anything. 
Let God be true, though everyone a liar. We must not sit in judgment over the Scripture. Okay. So then, having set that out of the way, so that's all my goal this morning. I'm not going to deal with the scientific objections. There are people dealing with that. I'm just going to deal with the text. What then do we make of Genesis 1? And here's really the question inside the church. Because most people are not going to say, well, Genesis is wrong. Because really, you really do have three options. You can just say, well, yeah, Genesis teaches literal creation in six days, not billions of years ago, and that's wrong. Moses was wrong. Now, not many people are going to say that who call themselves Christians. Some might, but not many. What they more likely will do, what's more like an option, and this is an in-house discussion. Christians say this. You want to differentiate between, between unbelievers and Christians. What Christians will say is, well, you're misunderstanding Genesis 1 or 2. It's poetry. It's Hebrew poetry. And, and it's a creation myth story. And, and it gives the Israelites a sense of, of, of corporate identity. And it tells them why we're here. And you know, not dissimilar to our sort of Americana stories of like John Bunyan, Paul Bunyan and, and his big blue ox. Or, or you know, the impossible feat of skipping a silver dollar across the Potomac River by George Washington. You know, we, we have these myths. And they give us a sense of corporate identity. And they give us a sense of togetherness. And it gives us a sense of who we are. And that's all Moses is doing here, Really? Is that what's going on? Because if that is what's going on, then it would be right to say, we shouldn't take this as though Moses is trying to lay out history, scientific fact. Well, the, the problem with that argument is that, raise your hand if you are currently a Hebrew scholar. I want you to notice my hand is not up. I had two years of Hebrew in seminary. Daniel, how many years have you had? Five? He's not raising his hand. Hebrew is... It's bare of a language. Bare of a language. All those gutturals and spitting and, you know, it's, it's a bare of a language. And, and the problem is you get into this sort of conflict of authorities because somebody's authority says it is poetry. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but let me assure you, it is not poetry. The, the answer here, by the way, no. You just fill in the blank. No, it is not just Hebrew poetry myth. No, the scriptures uniformly treat Genesis as true history. True history. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a minute. But let me just assure you that studies have been done of, of what makes up the characteristics of Hebrew poetry, and, and it simply it isn't. And no one prior to the last 150 years in the church history has seriously suggested it is poetry. Only in, in the rise of modern scientific theories has the rise in suggesting this is poetry come to the forefront. It's, it's not poetry. And, and you can talk to Pastor Daniel or myself, but Pastor Daniel, more if you have questions about that. <laughs> oh, I learned from Pastor Gary well. Um, and and what, I, what I want to do is show you that even though you don't, because you have to take my word for that, because again, you're not a Hebrew scholar, and I've admitted I'm not a Hebrew scholar, and so it can be confusing. Well, this authority says it is, this authority says it isn't. Well, I'm saying it isn't, and I'm now going to say, you don't, need to, you don't need to be a Hebrew scholar to resolve this question. Um, because the rest of the Bible interacts with this text, and we can look at how the rest of the Bible interacts with this text and get our cues from that. In fact, point, point one here, can I suggest to you that all this debating over what does Moses mean in Genesis 1, that no one other than the living God has a better idea of what Moses meant in Genesis 1 than, say, Moses? Is that fair enough? 
with me? That, that, I don't want that to be too big of a leap. Moses probably has the best idea of any living person other than the living Christ of what Moses meant in Genesis 1. So if you would turn with me to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And what we have here is Moses' commentary on Moses. We have Moses in Exodus interacting with what he wrote in Genesis. And before we dive into this, let me say that no one is suggesting that the Ten Commandments, that I'm aware of at least, are poetry. They're, they're case law. You know, they're not guidelines. They're, they're law. People, people get put to death over violating the Ten Commandments, right? This is not, well, it's just poetic. He just sort of means, you know, don't lie in general. No, it, you don't lie. And in fact, what we're going to look at, the Sabbath law... You, you, God got killed for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. This isn't just some poetic statement. This is the real deal. This is law. We're not in the land of poetry. We're in legal prose. And so in Exodus chapter 20, verses, oh, let's pick it up in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or your sojourner who is within the gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore he blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I want you to get this. Why do you work six days if you're an Israelite and rest a seventh? Because, look at verse 11, in six days... The Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He rested on the seventh day. I I think it is undeniably clear that Moses believes the account he wrote in Genesis 1 is literal, referring to real days. Notice the comparison. We don't work for six long indeterminate periods of time. We, We work for six days. And then we rest on the seventh because God worked on six days and rested on the seventh. Genesis 1 gives you the definition of a day. Hey, there was some light, there was some darkness the first day. Actually, it's darkness and light. It was evening and morning the first day. I wonder what day means. It means that thing where there's some dark and then there's some light, that's a day. I think we all know what that is. That's a day. This also, by the way, eliminates the possibility of smuggling in billions of years between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That's known as the gap theory. And what Christians will argue is, okay, okay, the days are days, yom means day, can't get around that, but couldn't it be that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there's a gap? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness is upon the face of the deep, period. God made some stuff, and it's all disordered, and then day one starts, and we don't know how long ahead day one is, couldn't it be billions of years later? Nope, because of Exodus 20. 11, for in six days, in six days, within the span of six days, the Lord made the heaven, he made the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. You get how all-encompassing that is? Is there any other category? God made some stuff that isn't under the heading of the, the, the earth, the sea, and the heavens, and all that is in them. That, that's pretty all-encompassing. And Moses is going on record in legal code Attesting that's true and that we should therefore model that with our six-day work week and seven-day rest, seventh-day rest. In other words, 
This goes beyond simply a myth story that makes us feel a sense of identity. This would be the equivalent of like a national holiday or day of remembrance for, for um, Paul Bunyan's ox. It'd be pretty foolish um, for us to do that. People are being put to death because of a myth. The guy who gathered sticks on the Sabbath, put to death. God didn't really... This whole thing doesn't make sense if it's a myth. Clearly, Moses doesn't think it's a myth. Not only that, we're not going to have time to look at it, but, but when they return, when the exiles return from, from Babylon, and they have to restart at the priesthood, it's important for people to show what tribes they're from. And If you've ever read through the Bible reading program, you know to dread the first eight chapters of Chronicles. Because the first eight, what are the first eight chapters of Chronicles? They're just big lists of genealogies. Do you know what the very first genealogy in Chronicles chapter 1 starts? Connecting Adam to Abraham. The post-exilic community believed Adam was a real person and believed through a series of generations you could track back accurately to Adam. We're in the category of thousands. We're not in the category of millions of years. I can tell you how old the earth is, but you can go read First Chronicles 1, and you can maybe suggest they left a name out or they cut the list down, but we're in thousands, not billions category. By the way, there's also a genealogy for Jesus in Luke 3. I want you to hear how that begins and ends, Luke 3. Jesus, when he began his ministry, is about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph. Cut ahead to verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke believes he can connect a real Christ to a real Adam through generational descent. Okay, let's not just stop there. The scriptures treat Genesis as true history. And what I mean by true history is people, again, trying to smuggle stuff in. Well, it's history, but it's not literal history. Well, that's a weird definition of history. It's a weird place you live in when you've got to say this is true history. But you, you have to. This is true history. This really happened. The, the writers of Scripture treat it like it really happened. I, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but when Jesus teaches on divorce and he's questioned, what does he base his answer off of? Have you not read? He made them two. They are no longer two, not one. Therefore, do not set asunder what God has joined together. Jesus' ethic on divorce, his opposition to it, is based on his understanding of Genesis 2. Jesus treats it as Real. And again, this is affecting real people's lives. This has real-world consequences. This isn't a nice story that gives you a good feeling. This is you, sir. You, sir, cannot divorce your wife, sir, because of what God said in Genesis 2 to Adam. That, that's real-world consequences. Or take it to the point, third step. The apostles taught it was true and binding. You, you remember teaching through 1 Timothy. What are the reasons Paul gives why women can't be pastors and teachers in the church? Two reasons. Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. Who was made first? Adam was made first. Who fell into, who was deceived? The woman was deceived. That's why. Which, by the way, is why coincidental with, with an attack on the historicity of Genesis is, not surprisingly, the rise of the female pastorate. Because if, of course, Genesis 1 and 2 are just myth, poetry, then Paul's argument falls apart. But again, Paul is making rules, rules that we find hard to accept, rules that we don't jibe with. That seems kind of, is, is Paul a bigot? And you can go back and you can listen to that message in 1 Timothy 2, and you can listen to it there. 
All I'm saying is Paul treats it as it's true history, and Paul is willing to make case law. He's willing to make the ordering and running of the church based upon the accuracy, the veracity of Genesis 1 and 2. And the list could be exhausted. This is a short list of, of the New Testament, the Old Testament's treatment of Genesis 1 through 11. It's true, and it's true history, and we're willing to base the way we live off of it, not just find inspiration and meaning from it. So my understanding then is, is if we're going to be biblically faithful, we, we have to recognize that, that Moses believes he's giving a true account of history. The Bible's not meant to be a history book, but as so far as it speaks of history, it speaks to it truly. The Bible's not a science book, but as so far as the Bible deals with things that we call science, it speaks truly. The Bible is not a psychological manual, but in so much as it deals with the human soul and thinking and hearts and motives, it's true. And Moses clearly believes in Exodus that his account in Genesis 1 is accurate. Jesus believes that. The apostles believe that. The the post-exilic community believes that. That means, then, that any... The Bible, a biblical faithfulness, cannot jive with a billions-of-year-old earth, and it can't jive with with the theory of macroevolution. It it can't. Now, you you can reject the book and say, okay, then the book's wrong. All I'm trying to argue is you can't say... The book is our authority. The book is the word of God. The book is without error. And the book can somehow fit in with those things. I I don't believe it can. I I really do not believe it can. Which brings us then to our third point. Why does all this matter? What's really at stake? Why why pick a fight, Jeremy? Why stir a can of worms? Why risk us looking foolish? Because let's face it, young earth creationism is the most mocked and ridiculed view I'm aware of um, today. Just from signs of the internet, you put them next to sort of flat earthers in regards to credibility. Um, and why, why do that? Why, why invite the ridicule? Why, why stir the pot? Three reasons. A lot is at stake. But in summary, if you want to put it in simple terms, it's this. If you alter the beginning of the Bible, you must alter its end. If you alter the beginning of the Bible, you must alter its end. And before going further, I already made this point, but... The, but it it's, goes without saying, the, the integrity of Jesus, the apostles, and the scripture itself is at stake. If, if Genesis 1 and 2 is wrong, or if it's just a myth, or if it's just poetry, then Moses didn't understand what he wrote, and Jesus didn't understand what Moses wrote, and Paul didn't understand what Moses wrote. You just lost Jesus, the apostles, and the Bible. I will suggest that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Jesus is big for Christianity. He is. He's very important. And that's, I'm, I'm mocking it by understatement. You lose the credibility of Jesus. But there's more. Why is this a big deal? Second, our understanding of sin and death is at stake. Turn to Romans 5. This is really theologically one of my biggest problems with, with um, the theory of evolution. What I'm trying to get at with this statement that if you alter the beginning, you alter the end, is the Bible has a storyline to it. We talked about worldview. We talked about meta narratives. We talked about framing everything. And I'm going to suggest to you that if you, if you make these tweaks at the beginning, you really are going to skew the storyline of the Bible. I just want to read a passage in Romans 5 by the Apostle Paul. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. Let's stop there. Now, Paul is emphatic here on verse 12, and he's emphatic elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, that death came into the world through the sin of the man. And so I want to put two stories next to you. I want you to see two different pictures of the world, okay? In one, God creates the heavens and the earth, and it is good, and there is no death. The man and the woman sin, and they rebel against God, and death enters the world, and now the creation is groaning. Now the animals are devouring each other. Now the, the wolf is no longer eating hay like the ox. It's devouring the lions, attacking the lamb, and brothers is attacking brother, and we live in a dying world, a judged world. Paul in Romans 8 will say the creation is groaning. And every time I'm at a funeral, I, I mention this, that, that the way we recoil, the horror, the anguish, the pain that we feel in watching our loved ones die and get sick is, is right because death is the intruder. Death is alien. It wasn't part of God's very good world. When God said it was very good, there was no cancer. When God said it was very good, there wasn't death. And then Jesus enters into the world And lo and behold, the sinless one, the sinless lamb of God dies for us. He tastes death so that we wouldn't have to. Death is being undone. First, spiritually for us, as we no longer have to die, we can live because he died. But then we're told when he comes back, he's going to redeem the creation as well. Paul says that in Romans 8. The creation's awaiting. It's awaiting the resurrection. And in Isaiah, we hear that what's going to happen in that kingdom, and we're going to get more of this in Zechariah, is that the lion is going to lay down with the lamb, and the, the, the wolf is going to eat hay, and, and the child is going to play with, 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 with the asp near it and won't be afraid of being bitten. That what was, went wrong is going to be fixed. That, that's the point. And it's a very different story. It's a very different story indeed if this God looks down on the world before the man and the woman are made and wolf is devouring other wolf and lion is devouring lambs and there's sickness and there's disease and he looks at it and he says, very good. It's just a very different story. And then when you get to the end of the story in 1 Corinthians 15 where it says the last enemy to be put under his feet is death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory, oh, death? Paul, taunting death because Christ came to undo it. It will be done away with. He died so that death could die, right? And what a great triumph and climax to the story that is. And it's unintelligible if, well, no, death was part of the very good creation. What are you getting on about death for? Why has death got such a bad rap, Paul? God looked at it and he said it was very good. You get a very different story. I got a chance to run into Tim Keller. Some of you may know his name. He's a good, solid pastor, Presbyterian guy up in, in, uh, in Manhattan, I believe. Redeemer Presbyterian. He's the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. He's written a number of excellent books. Great guy. But he holds to an old earth. And I got, ran into him in a corridor at, the, uh, at a hotel in Chicago at a conference. And I said, Pastor Keller... I have a moment of your time. He said, yeah. I said, you believe in, in an old earth, right? And he said, yeah. And he said, well, let me explain. I believe in a real Adam and a real Eve and a real garden with a real snake. I said, that's great. 
but I do believe that before that, there was a lot of time, and I do believe evolutionary processes governed the development of animals. I said, cool. I said, I don't want to start a debate. Just one question. Um, what, what, do you, what does your view do with death before sin? And this guy, he is smart. He looked at me, and he just goes, that's the question, isn't it? I'm sort of waiting for more. And, <laughs> and, and, and then he suggested, well, if Jesus is the Lamb of God who's slain before the foundation of the world and God can apply the benefit of Jesus' death before he dies, maybe God could apply the curse of sin before sin occurred. And I said, thank you for your time. And that was, that was the best. And, and, and trust me, Tim Keller is going to have the best that that side's got to have. I, he's, a, he's a good source. And if that's the best... There isn't an answer to this. How do you have death before sin? How do you have death before sin and not rip apart Paul's logic in Romans 5? And how do you have death before sin and not radically change the work of Christ? Point C, what Christ came to do. He came to die so that death could die. He came to die so there wouldn't be any more funerals. He came to die so that there'd be life instead of death. I think it matters a great deal. Our understanding of sin and death and the gospels at stake, our understanding of the personal work of Christ at stake. Keep going in Romans 5, because Paul is going to compare Jesus to Adam. How are we to understand Jesus, Paul? I, I need some clarification on understanding who Jesus is. He's, look what Paul says. Verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass... Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. You're going to understand Jesus, Paul is saying, and what he did and the consequence of his actions as you understand and compare it to the effect and the actions of Adam. He does it again. Verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following one trespass has brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in order to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you get how like five times Paul says just for as, so then? That would be really strange if he's comparing Jesus to a myth, to a metaphor, to a poem. Just as, you know, Paul Bunyan, so Jesus. It doesn't work. You've got to say Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and so our understanding of who Jesus is and his work starts to unravel because here and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes extended comparisons between what Adam did, the first man, Paul's point is, there's one guy, his name's Adam, and he does something that has huge effects for everybody. Sin enters the world, and death, and it spreads to everyone. And one man, Jesus, comes, and he does something that has huge effects for everybody, because now life is available through faith in his name. That's the point Paul's trying to make. And it absolutely falls apart if, if we're dealing with a myth, and a legend, or a poem. What's at stake? The integrity of the Bible and Jesus is at stake. Our understanding of sin and death is at stake. And our understanding of the person and work of Christ is at stake. In short, 
faithful Christianity is at stake if we're consistent. If we're consistent. Finally, we got to move. How then should we as Christians respond? How then should we as Christians respond? And I know this is a quick treatment of this subject. You'll have many questions. I'll take them in the ABF time, and we might be able to hit some more of this in chapters 2 and 3. Here's my answer. We must receive and believe God's word and give him the honor and thanks due him as the author of all. We must receive and believe God's word and give him the honor and the thanks due him as the author of all. First, recognize that history is his story. That's really what the debate's about, right? Who gets to define reality? We, we know this. Whoever gets to define the terms, whoever gets to frame the discussion is probably going to win. And since we want to win, we want to frame the discussion. We want to define the terms. And so when we come to understanding the world around us, where do we start? Do we start with Descartes, and I think therefore I am, and here's what I've found out? Or do we start with there's a living God and he has spoken? There's a talking God and he, and he has a word for me. What would be your starting place? And if we recognize faithfully that God's word trumps everything, that God's word sits in judgment on everything, we don't sit in judgment on God's word, but according to Hebrews 12, nothing is hidden from its sight, the sharp two-edged sword. Then we recognize that history is his story to tell. The one who made the world gets to tell us how he did it. In that case, we would do well to listen to the rebuke that God gave to Job when Job began to get a little uppity. In Job 38, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched its line upon it? On what were spaces sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang for joy and all the sons of God shouted? God comes to, to, to Job. He says, Job, you think you know some stuff? That's Job's problem. He's like, here's what I know about justice, and here's what I know about what God's doing. It's not lining up, God. It's not lining up. And that's okay until he starts to justify himself, until he starts to insinuate maybe God got it wrong. And then God shows up, and he says, hi, I'm God. Who are you? <laughs> how many? Job, Job, how many universes have you made lately, Job? Tell me how you did it. Okay, then how's what I talk, and you listen? We do well to realize that history is his story to tell. We need to understand that the author has authority as all authority. The author has all authority. We get that. Authority comes from authorship. If he made it, he gets to define it. And when we get to Genesis 2, that's going to be a big deal because if God made marriage, he gets to define it. If we made marriage, we can do what we want with it. The author has the authority over what he made. The potter has the right over the clay. Finally, this is probably the most important. And open your Bibles to Romans 1, and then we'll quickly go to Revelation 4. Romans 1, then Revelation 4. And we'll move into our communion time. Finally, we need to honor him and give thanks to him. And that's really the issue. Those of you who know me at all well know that Romans 1, 18 and following, is a huge, huge formative passage in my understanding of the world, in my worldview and meta-narrative. It, it, it describes the problem of sin in man. And we'll get to this more in Genesis 3. Man and woman were made, they're put in a good garden. What went wrong? Well, Genesis 1, I mean, Romans 1, sorry, I'll help shed some light on this. Romans 1, 18 and following. 
Why is, and I want you to get this. Why is God angry at sin? Why is God, what's the, if this is the prosecution's charge, what is it? And it's not the 27 list of sins that come at the end of the chapter. Yes, God is angry at that. If you look down at 28 and following, there's this laundry list of various vices and sins that, that God's wrath is coming for. But that's not the heart of the issue. That's not the root of the tree. That's not the real issue. What's the real issue? God's wrath, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? He'll tell us. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Now get this. What Paul's saying is this. Without a Bible, creation is revealing things about God. That's what Psalm 19 says. Day into day pours forth speech. The heavens are declaring God's glory. And what they're saying is there's a powerful God. There's a great God. He made this world. He made this universe. Look at his power. Look at his wisdom. Look at his majesty. Look at his governance. And what he's saying here is people see that. For ever since the creation of the world, his divine attributes have been clearly perceived in the created things. And what was the response we were supposed to give to, to, to his creation? We were supposed to be what they didn't do. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, which is to say they didn't reverence him and obey him as God and they weren't thankful. You see, what we do with creation is a big deal. Adam and Eve in the garden were not thankful for all the good things God had gave them. They became envious of that one tree they couldn't touch. and They didn't honor him as God. And it's a lot easier to dishonor God if we reshape and reform the creation and our understanding of it in our own image. This, this ties in with big stuff. The fundamental root problem of sin is we see the information coming in from creation. We don't like it. We suppress it. We give it a makeover. Which is why I'm very nervous when Christians take Genesis 1 and they suppress it and they give it a makeover. Because how we respond to God in creation is a big, big deal. We need to receive God's word, even if we don't get it. Even if, I don't understand how this fits in with the most recent discoveries. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe everything the Bible says comports with reality comports with reality and will be found to be true. I don't expect that that means at any given moment in time our scientific consensus agrees with the Bible. But it shouldn't, once you settle the issue of authority, it shouldn't bug you. Of course there'll be questions I don't have answers to. That's fine. I'm sure there are answers. We can look through them. We receive it. We believe it. And then we give him honor and we give thanks. Now we're going to close in prayer and move for a time of communion. And I'm going to call the ushers forward. So let's pray while I call the ushers forward. Lord God, we just thank you for your word and we thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your manifold and lavish gifts that you have given to us. Lord, give us the faith and the grace to receive and believe your word. and Give us thankful hearts that honor you as God. In Jesus' name, amen.